I think something like it is going to be um, you know, an important part of the, the next generation of the internet. Welcome to The Wagon Live, where each week we bring you stories from entrepreneurs around the world. This week, we're talking to Nick Johnson, a software engineer at the Ethereum Foundation, one of the leading lights of the cryptocurrency industry. It starts with a great introduction to Ethereum, so even if you aren't a total crypto nerd, there's still a lot to get out of it. So my first question is going to be a kind of basic one. Uh, so how would, you, how would you essentially explain Ethereum to your mum if you had to? So I guess it would depend on who my hypothetical mum is. Uh, usually I, I start by asking people if they've heard of Ethereum. And when they say no, I ask them if they've heard of Bitcoin. And when they say yes, I say it's like Ethereum is like programmable Bitcoin. Um, more, in more detail, it's, it's a way of um, maintaining a, a... So sorry, if my mum was a programmer or an engineer of some sort, I would say that it's a, a shared ledger um, where you can write programs that govern how you update the ledger. So basically you can, um, you can all agree on a set of entries into this ledger that specify things like the balance of different accounts and how balances should be moved around, but also just general variables like the number of times something's been called or somebody's name or whatever. And you can define a set of rules that are also baked into the ledger which specify uh, what updates are allowed to be made and who can make those updates. Uh, and the, the crucial, insightful thing about blockchains like Ethereum is that uh, they're structured in such a way that um, you can rely on those promises to be true and you can actually verify that all the other nodes acted correctly and, and maintained those promises independently of, of anyone else. You don't have a single trusted party anywhere. So the, the holy grail of decentralization. Yeah. So, so am I right when I assume that what we call smart contracts is essentially something that, in, that is enabled by Ethereum. So Ethereum allows you to create smart contracts yes. on top of it. And, and smart contracts is a terrible name and most of us wish it had never been coined, but that's what we, everybody calls it now. Um, effectively, they're just bits of code that run on a ledger that, you know, that everyone can see and that everyone can verify run correctly. Okay, okay, cool. And so, um, my next ne next set of questions is going to be more around yourself and what you do at the Ethereum Foundation and uh, why did you get into the Ethereum and cryptocurrency world because it's it's, it's quite of a choice I know I know myself so so what were you doing before uh, joining the Ethereum Foundation? So I joined about eighteen months ago and prior to that I was working at Google as a software engineer. Um, I, I got contacted by a recruiter for a financial company and they said, do you want to come work for us on Ethereum? And I went, no, I really don't want to, but this Ethereum thing seems interesting and started looking at it and playing with it and wrote some code. And, and next thing I know, I'm getting a call from uh, Jeff Wilk, the, the head of the Go team on, at the foundation saying, would you like to interview for a, a role on the Go team? And by that point, I was already well and truly hooked. And so the idea of turning it from a, a thing I found interesting, you know, when I wasn't at work into my full-time job was, was pretty appealing and I don't regret it yet. So I guess it was a good choice. 16 months, I, get, I guess you've had like the occasion to see like, it's, I mean, it's enough to see if you're going to regret it or not. <laughs> well, so, so the, my first day was uh, a, a Monday and the previous Friday was the Dow hack. So if I was going to bail, then that was probably yeah. when I would have bailed. Yeah, 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 definitely. Okay, cool. Good to know. And so what, what do you do? What, what do you do? Like, 
because like for me like uh, working on a foundation for a coin is 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 very specific it's not like a company like like google right so how how does it actually work and like are you yeah how does it work so in many ways it is it, it's similar in my experience to, to startups i've worked for only distributed um, you know, and, and perhaps a little more disorganised. Um, we, we have a, um, you know, a central management, we have an executive director in Switzerland for the foundation, um, and then we have project teams, each with a team lead. Um, I'm on the go team, um, and then we internally schedule our work and set our priorities and so on. Um, and it's it's reasonably sort of distributed and, and I guess decentralised. Um, practically none of us live in the same city as each other, so it's a distributed work as well. Um, but in terms of day-to-day -day operations, it's a lot like working at a startup. You you know you you get together and you plan out tasks and you figure out what needs improving and so on and and work on it and then see how you did. Um, in terms of what I actually do day-to-day, -day, I'm I'm on the Go team, which means normally my job is to, to help write the Go Ethereum client. Um, in practice, uh, most of my time since I joined has been taken up with ENS, the Ethereum name service, which started off as a way to um, make it possible for Swarm, the distributed storage system, to have names associated with sites, and then rapidly evolved into this all-encompassing thing that seems to take up almost all of my time now, uh, to the point where we're actually starting up our own non-profit entity to help promote and standardize Swarm. It'll basically be a standards organization. Okay, my next questions are going to be about Ethereum and the, the future of Ethereum. And um, so to me, like, uh, you know, in the Bitcoin environment, a lot of uh, different people have different visions for Bitcoin and what it should be in the future. So what's, um, what is, what is your vision of Ethereum and what is going to be what it is maybe right now and what it's supposed to be in the long in, in the long term and hopefully that you know uh, it's the same as uh, what the co-founders have in mind. But, yeah. So I, I, for me, its promise is that it lets you build uh, decentralized systems that are sort of intelligent that run a, a set of rules that everyone understands. Um, where everyone can verify that they're actually running under those rules. And so pretty much any system you can think of now that requires a, a trusted party, so your bank or, you know, your uh, mortgage broker or, um, you know, the, the title land title registry or, you know, any number of, of existing systems where um, you're basically relying on somebody to keep accurate records um, and you perhaps have no sort of... Uh, independent way to verify that those records are correct could be rebuilt on a platform like Ethereum. And the power of Ethereum over something like Bitcoin is that it's it's fully programmable. So you can't you don't just bake in the records, you bake in all of the information needed to work with them. Um, so basically I see it as the one of the foundation layers of, of the next generation of the internet. Um, I think a lot of future technologies are going to be built on, if not Ethereum, then uh, its, its successor or, or uh, an improved version of it. I mean, I, I'm always cautious that maybe we'll be the Betamax of the future and some VHS is out there that's going to you know, beat our pants off. But I think something like it is going to be um, you know, an important part of the, the next generation of the internet. So the, the future world of Ethereum is a, like... If I go like very very far in, in you know in the future, is like a world where there are like basically zero intermediaries. I think that would be the vision. Um, I think the reality is that there will always be intermediaries. Okay. But I think that um, systems like Ethereum can help 
eliminate them in areas where they're not necessary any longer, um, especially situations where the main purpose they served was to, to uh, reduce communication costs and to solve the problem of, of somebody has to be trusted with the books, so we may as well give it to this guy, you know. Yeah, yeah, okay, definitely. And so in terms of applications that are uh, up and running today uh, in the Ethereum ecosystem, uh, which ones are the ones that are like the most um, successful or most interesting to you um, personally? So obviously I'm a bit biased, but I quite like the Ethereum name service. Mm -hmm. um, it's, uh, we, we launched in, um, May, on May the 4th, um, and we've currently got about 70 or 80,000 registered names, which makes us, if we were in an internet top-level domain in DNS, would be about the 25th largest, so we're doing pretty well in that regard. Um, aside from that, there's uh, systems like um, EtherDelta, which is a decentralized token exchange. Um, District OX um, is a, a, like a larger project, and they're launching smaller um, you know, things off the uh, sort of, they launch what they call uh, districts. Okay. Um, one of their first ones, in fact, is for trading Ethereum uh, ENS names. Um, one that I've been playing around with lately is uh, Aragon, um, and their goal basically is to permit company management on the blockchain. And this is a really excellent example of the sort of thing it can permit because companies are already required to keep books. Um, they have to keep things like records of directors and shareholders and who has how many shares and they have to record all their resolutions and the changes to their articles of association and so on, uh, which all sounds dry as dust and usually it is. But Aragon lets you actually manage all that on the blockchain so that everyone can verify exactly who the members are, exactly who has who, what shares and e exactly what the rules are and they can they can even propose changes to the rules. Mm -hmm. And then the system itself says, okay, your change will require a two-thirds majority. And you could propose a change to that rule. So you could say, no, I want it to only require a 50% majority. And you could actually uh, run a company, you know, in a sort of a decentralized fashion. Uh, Colony is sort of tackling the opposite end of that. So that's the, uh, the plumbing and Colony does the porcelain. And they're helping build a, a platform that makes it easy for freelancers um, and, and contractors and consultants to get together and take on larger projects than any of them could take individually. So with that, you can form a, a group, you can uh, you know, get complementary skills, you can agree on a task and then hand out shares to the people who worked on it um, as, as shares of the reward for, for run. So uh, admittedly though, the projects I name are pretty much just the ones that I've like read about most recently. There's there's countless other ones that have slipped my mind. Yeah, no, 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 for sure. And uh, are there any projects that are like um, around um, how to make, for example, like public finance more tra transparent or things like this? Um, it's a good question. I haven't seen a lot around that. Because yeah, it's just you mentioning Aragorn. It really makes me think of this, especially right now with like, I don't know, the, all the scandals and etc. So that would be pretty, yes. pretty useful. I, I think it's an excellent idea. I think uh, the main barrier would be that um, well, there's, there's only one adopted. person. Yes, exactly. There's only, only one group that controls that and you've got to convince them specifically to adopt it. So it would probably be an uphill battle, but if we could do it, then that would be pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, I guess 
On the other hand, a lot of that information is theoretically available to us under freedom of information type provisions, and it would just be a matter of extracting it and, and providing it to the blockchain so it can be used by others. Um, and maybe if you, if you become enough of a pain in their ass that you're constantly doing that, they'll be like, fine, it would be easier if we just put it there in the first place, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, okay, well, we'll dream about it and then we'll see. <laughs> Um, my last question will be around, and then I'll open the questions, uh, will be around ICOs. Um, so obviously, um, a few years ago, Ethereum did its own, uh, you, you, I think Ethereum, the Ethereum Foundation called it a crowd sell at the time, or a pre-sell actually. And uh, the Ethereum Foundation raised something like, at the time, uh, $19 million, um, which was, I don't know how many Bitcoins, I, didn't, I don't remember that. And today we're seeing a lot of ICOs like, you know, just popping out every, everywhere and every day. Some of them are totally legit. Uh, some of them are not that legit. So um, what's, what's your uh, personal opinion about about ICOs and maybe like the angle would be so Ethereum the Ethereum platform is enabling a lot of those uh, ICOs uh, through RC20 so uh, ERC20 and so like um, I know like maybe let's not go too much on like negative stuff but uh, do you think there's something that Ethereum could do about like preventing uh, bad ICOs coming up, or it's not really the role of Ethereum to do, to do any of that? I, I think that if Ethereum wants to remain a, a neutral bit of infrastructure, which I think it should, then there's, there's nothing it can or should do about these. I think it's the job of, of people to, to try and be critical, which they're obviously uh, often not. Um, but that any, any effort to make the platform itself intervene in the viability of these, these things would uh, compromise its usefulness in general. Yeah, um, makes sense. If I can be permitted a bit of editorialising about ICOs in general, um, you're right, there is a lot of cool, legitimate stuff out there. There's also a lot of irrational exuberance. Um, some of my favourite projects who, that I think are you know, run by some serious people who can really do the job um, and, and are really going to deliver, and the tech is interesting, have been met with ridiculous fundraisers to the point where I think that they'll they'll actually be less likely to deliver because of the sheer amount of money that's been thrown at them. And if they do deliver, and it's anything short of like establishing a base on the moon, it's going to be looked at as a disappointment because people rate it relative to the amount of funds it raised, not relative to their original goals. You know, if you raise $200 million, even if you do the original thing you said you were going to do, they're going to be, but that's like a million dollars per feature, you know. Um, and so... So I find that a little worrying, and I um, I also worry that when this bubble bursts, and it will, just like with .com, it's going to hurt a lot of legitimate, promising projects. Some of them will go under um, because they're caught up with with all of the the nonsense, yeah. you know. Um, so it's, I, I worry less about the obviously crap ones because I feel like people who don't critically assess what they're investing in are going to get bitten one way or another. I worry more about the collateral damage. I remember looking at Bitcoin when it was fairly new and immediately dismissing it because I went, there's no way this can ever scale. This is just a toy, you know. Um, and, and the same is largely true for every other distributed ledger technology at the moment. Um, but I think we're starting to see some, some real promise for ways forwards. 
And I would say there's basically two prongs. One is uh, Casper and Proof of Stake, which provide a, um, a constant factor improvement to performance. So you can fit more transactions in, but the scalability, you know, the big O is still the same. Um, and that's going to likely enable something on the order of a threefold, maybe even more improvement in throughput for something like Ethereum. But the more promising long-term route so far is things like plasma and sharding. Um, sharding is sort of the idea of you, you cut the blockchain up into sort of uh, homogenous pieces that all run independently but communicate with each other. And if you cut it up into n pieces, you have n times the transaction throughput. Uh, things like plasma and sidechains are the idea that you cut the blockchain up into a bunch of heterogeneous pieces where they all do different things and have different capabilities. And that, and specifically Vitalik's uh, vision that he, he elaborated on at DevCon recently, I think is the most promising one, because it's basically the idea that you start a new blockchain, it uses some form of proof of stake, um, it's not uh, able to engage and have the same high level of security as, as something like Ethereum itself because it has smaller stakers and fewer of them. But what it does is it regularly checkpoints its stake to the main Ethereum blockchain. And then through that, you can actually um, if achieve the same level of security as the main chain at a much lower cost. And it also means you can innovate faster. You can build an entirely new type of chain and launch it and just checkpoint it to the main chain and evolve that way. So Vitalik's suggestion is that over time, uh, Ethereum would effectively become um, the, the base layer um, and it would become quite conservative in terms of upgrades and improvements and so on. Um, but it would only be used to prove the state of all these uh, subchains chained off it. Um, and I think that's the most promising approach at the moment. Um, but I, I think and hope that more will come up in the future because um, while that's a big improvement, it also leads to, to communication difficulties between these different subchains. It makes writing some types of applications harder because they have to rely on these asynchronous messages between chains and so forth. So um, I, I'm optimistic that we'll come up with something closer to the scalability holy grail, but I think that in the medium term, we've got some pretty promising approaches that will keep us able to, to build new stuff uh, without running out of transaction capacity. Um, so uh, the, Go, the Go team uh, maintains Go Ethereum or Geth, uh, which is one of the two main Ethereum clients um, that are out there. The other one's called Parity and it's run by an external company called Parity Technologies. Um, so basically if you want to synchronize to the Ethereum chain and do transactions on it, you, you're pretty much either running Go or Parity. And ENS is the Ethereum name service. Um, it is to Ethereum what DNS is to the wider internet. Basically, the idea is that for any Ethereum resource, such as a contract or an address or, or anything else like a, a swarm site, uh, you can associate a name, a human readable short name, and then users can type that in anywhere they would type in an Ethereum address, which starts with OX and is 40 characters long and completely impossible to remember, um, and get the same res resource. Um, and we launched that less than a year ago. It's got pretty good support in, in most of the mainline wallets but it's still a work in progress. Uh, notably, practically no exchanges support it, um, and only some, you know, uh, uh, maybe about half of, of newly, newly launched uh, apps supported out of the box. So we're still working on adoption, but the goal is that nobody should have to type or copy and paste obscure addresses. They should be able to interact with it the same way they interact with the rest of the internet, where you never type an IP address unless you're a developer. So, so first off, to, to clarify most 
what people call DAPs are most, or DAPs, or I've, I've heard about half a dozen ways to pronounce them, um, generally have two components. You have the front end, which is JavaScript and HTML and so forth, and obviously that's quite easy to change. And then you have the smart contracts, which is the back end and is, is immutable. Um, there's a few common approaches, um, and it kind of depends on what sort of application you're building. So the example I gave earlier of EtherDelta is a, a decentralized on-chain token exchange, and the way they do it is they, they don't have any built-in um, transition mechanism, but when they launch a new version, they update a reference to point to the new version, and all of the existing sale activity stops, basically, and people can withdraw their tokens from the existing version and empty the exchange out, basically, and then start the activity again on the new exchange. So if, you're, um, if your smart contracts rely mostly on transactional data, like something like, something like an exchange does, then that's a, a fairly easy approach. Um, if your smart contracts rely on you know, longer-term data, uh, then you have a couple of options. Um, one is that you deploy a sort of a proxy contract, and that proxy contract forwards all calls to whatever the current backend contract is. So it retains the data, but none of the, ex none of the code behind it. Um, and then some other contract provides the code, and you can swap that out at any time. Um, one of the issues with that is that um, it doesn't provide your users with nearly so strong guarantees of uh, what code they're interacting with because at any time you could swap out the code for something that just steals all their money or you know whatever you prefer. Um, so other approaches take a sort of an intermediate approach. So for instance, you have a, a central contract which uh, enforces some basic rules that you expect will change infrequently, and that calls out to modules that have very specific responsibilities. So they call things like um, an authorization module which asks the question, can user X do action Y? And all it can do is return true or false. And they call out to a, you know, uh, an external exchange module, which then interacts with some other contract. And each of those can be in, upgraded independently, but um, have limited scope. And the upgrades can be scheduled in a way that users are aware of the change in behaviour. Um, so, uh, and a third option is that you use uh, a structure like ENS, where you have a, a central uh, registry contract, which basically just contains mappings from um, for example, names or functions to the, the contracts that implement them. But, and, and of course, hybrids of, of all of those approaches. Mostly it comes down to what your app is going to look like and, um, and, and what your data storage looks like as well. Um, oh, and just to add another one, you can potentially just uh, write an entirely new contract, provide a sort of a, a migration path where you manually copy over all the data to the new contract, and then you basically flip a flag that says no more imported data, and then the normal rules establish themselves. And anyone can then verify, they can look at the old contract, look at the new contract, check the data's the same, check that you've closed the, the master switch so you can't change that anymore, and presto, you have the new contract. But basically it's still, it's still an evolving sort of state of the art, and it depends on what you want to do. Um, generally, when you're, I mean, a lot of dApps don't provide good insight into this and in that you just go to a fancy web interface and then you're prompted with a pop-up box. Um, this is one thing that ENS can help with by resolving that to a name, which tells you, you know, it can say, you know, this is my, my dApp.eth and it was last updated six months ago, you know, the mapping. Um, but without that what you can do is you know when you go to make the transaction it tells you what address you're making the transaction to you can go look that up in the uh, chain explorer like etherscan and see the code because any 
author of an app that they expect other people to interact with should have published the code there so you can actually see what's going on. And hopefully they will have also published uh, information on audits and so on so you can see uh, whether they had some serious looking people look over it and nod um, and, and tell, you, tell them that there weren't any uh, obvious flaws. Um, my question is from a, from a ma mainstream user perspective. Say I'm, I'm extremely excited about Ethereum. So what, what, can I, what, what can I do to participate in the ecosystem knowing that I'm not a software engineer um, and yeah, I'm not, I'm not part of the Ethereum Foundation and I don't work for, um, for a cryptocurrency company. What, how, can I, how can I contribute to the ecosystem? And yeah, what, what can I do essentially? Um, I, I guess the, the main thing to do is, is have a look around on places like the Ethereum Reddit and so on. Find apps that people are building that you're enthusiastic about. Um, look for, for ones that are opening up alphas and betas and so on and participate, play around with them, find bugs, report those bugs with the clearest possible descriptions. Um, you know, give feedback on, on things and, and suggestions and so forth um, is you know, as with any sort of alpha software, the one of the biggest barriers is actually finding enough users who are actually in your target market and who are actually those rare users who give useful feedback. Um, so that would probably be the number one thing you could do. Okay. Okay, cool. Oh, number two thing you can do is, is tell other people about Ethereum and how cool it is. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I'll have to find a good, good way to describe it to my, to my mom, actually, who's She's an engineer, but not a software engineer. So <laughs> I'll find one. Yes. So um, Ether was, uh, when it was launched, had a, a pre-mine of basically tokens for all the people that contributed to the crowd sale. Um, since then, it's had a reward of five Ether per block for miners um, with a smaller reward if you, you mine a block and it doesn't make it onto the main chain, what we call uncles. Um, so it works out to a little bit over five ether per block in the long run. Um, as of Byzantium, which was, what was it, about less than a month ago, uh, the, the reward for miners was reduced from five ether to three ether um, based on the premium for two reasons. One was that uh, with the price of ether escalating a lot since that figure was originally set, the amount that was being effectively dispersed to miners was um, more than enough to, to effectively secure the chain. Um, and the reason that we could demonstrate that was because before Byzantium there was what was called the Ice Age, which was a built-in limit that basically slowed Ethereum down more and more to effectively force us to upgrade the network. Um, and so that had resulted in the effective reward going from 5 Ether a block down to 3 Ether a block and still having plenty of miners and a, a very high level of security. Um, so it was reduced at that point. There's no plans to set a cap on, on total Ether. When Casper comes in, that will likely reduce the issuance further because Casper requires lower sort of payouts to, to stakers than, than the current rewards. Um, basically, you just need to offer enough that the effective interest rate is, is worth the, the effort of pledging. Um, but there's no, there's no attempt to sort of you know, reduce that on a time scale like Bitcoin does. Um, and there's good reasons for that. There was a paper published a few years back um, about uh, selfish mining, and um, it's called The Stability of Bitcoin Under Negligible, Negligible Block Rewards, I think is the full title. And it demonstrates that 
when the block rewards get a lot smaller than the transaction uh, value, miners are actually incentivized to ignore blocks from other miners in the hope of mining those transactions themselves. So effectively every miner ends up maintaining its own chain with just the stuff it did. And then you have these massive reorgs occurring on an ongoing basis because nobody's prepared to give up on the opportunity to mine those transactions themselves. Um, and nobody's proposed a, a great solution to that yet, except to keep block rewards above the level of transaction rewards, or at least at the <coughs> level where sacrificing them is a real cost. I, I do see a lot of um, let's do X, but with blockchain type startups, and some of them are, are to be honest, pretty damn stupid. Um, I, I wouldn't include something like Aragon in there though, because I, having run a very small company myself, one person, and even then it's a bit of a pain in the ass, and, and being anticipating opening a larger one, a non-profit with, you know, many many users and many, you know, and, and several board members and regular meetings and stuff. And having played with Aragon, I actually think they are offering something that makes it easier, especially if your company's membership is distributed around the world, so your general meetings can't necessarily be held in an office where everyone raises their hands if they agree with the proposal. But at the same time, yes, I do see a lot of really quite silly ideas, and I, I don't really want to call out names because you know some of them are in London and they might be here. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, there, there are definitely projects out there where basically their main premise is, let's take this existing well-known you know, product and add blockchain to it, where actually the blockchain doesn't add a lot because um, blockchains are incredibly inefficient compared to regular sort of centralized computing. Um, they don't uh, automatically give you any benefits in terms of like interacting with humans or anything that you can't get with, with regular communications. Where they excel is at building and proving consensus amongst people with uh, different objectives and, and conflicting interests. Um, so if you can point to, a, to an area with, where that is the case, then maybe there's, you know, innovation is possible. But when you look at a lot of existing things, um, often it just doesn't make sense. So as background for anyone who, here who might not be familiar, um, you can broadly divide tokens up into whether they're a utility token, which means they're sort of necessary for the functioning of the platform, um, or whether they're a security token, in which case they're basically an investment. Um, and a lot of, pretty much every ICO so far has tried to pretend, at least pretend that their tokens are utility tokens because that means they can hopefully, fingers crossed, not, you know, come to the attention of the SEC and other equivalent regulators and, you know, be, be sent to jail. Um, the, I, I think relatively few of the ICOs I've actually seen really, really are utility tokens. And I think the critical criteria there is, could you replace this token with Ether? Um, and if you did so, would you lose any significant usefulness or value? So I think if you look at systems like Gnosis and Augur, they actually have a legitimate case for a utility token because they require uh, voting on, a, you know, on decisions and so forth. And in order for that to make sense, they kind of have to have a constrained supply because if their supply was effectively unlimited, as Ether is relative to any individual application to all intents and purposes, you could have you know whales just storming in at the last minute and you know completely throwing your results. You would have no way of uh, determining like how solid your consensus was, um, and therefore it kind of makes sense to have utility token, and it even makes sense for it to be publicly traded because then the price can adjust according to how how much people want to acquire of this in order to to do it. Um, but other ICOs, even some I really like, 
um, the the utility token is kind of wedged in there. You know, it, it's it's the case that you could just rip it out and replace it with ether, and the system would not only operate no worse, it might actually operate better because it would be one less action the users had to take in order to buy it. So yeah, that's my my gold test is just. Um, you know, or my litmus test is just check whether I could swap it for ether and, and would it be any different. I would say first, I, I would first off want to say that um, crypto, the, the, the apps people are building are very diverse and therefore it may not make sense for there to be just three or four, but you could probably say the same about Silicon Valley um, pre-bubble or, you know, sorry, pre-pop. I don't know. I, I suspect that you're right in some ways. There will be a few big companies, but I think that that won't necessarily be the result of a bubble popping. I think it may just be because there's always a power distribution. Some of the companies, and I can already see some of them like Consensus, who are, you know, finger in every in every pie, um, are, are going to be the juggernauts. And that the bubble popping, if anything, just clears out a lot of the, the smaller companies that might otherwise make it harder to, to see who the players are. Um, so my opinions on IOTA are kind. Um, in fact, I wrote a Medium article a while ago called Why I Find IOTA Deeply Alarming, um, which attracted a lot of attention, both positive and negative. Um, in terms of what you're talking about, um, the, the issue I see with IOTA is I don't think it has a, a clearly argued security model. Um, so the, the security model of, of Bitcoin and Ethereum is, is what we call Nakamoto consensus. And it basically effectively proves that if no uh, one person controls more than 51% of the, or more than 50% of the hash power, although recently with Bitcoin that's been revised down due to things like selfish mining, um, then they cannot uh, rewrite history. Um, and that exists because the, the system uses mining with proof of work and because the difficulty of that mining adjusts in order to maintain a constant block time. And the result of that is that as power gets added to the network, it, it evens out to, to the same sort of net issuance rate. Um, and because there is actual issuance which provides people a financial incentive to, to mine. The issue with something with IOTA, which has the idea that every transaction just has a small bit of sort of fixed proof of work attached, is that there's no feedback loop there. So there's nothing that says that the total amount of work put in by all the people transacting on IOTA must exceed an attacker's compute power. There's Because uh, unlike the, the incentivized systems of Bitcoin and Ethereum, there's, there's nothing that encourages people to, to put in more work on the, legit, the legitimate side of things. So its security depends on how much work the legitimate users are willing to put in and how many legitimate transactions there are. And I think it's entirely plausible that a, a large attacker could, you know, hire a couple of hundred GPUs and therefore have more hash power than every IoT device out there. And I could be wrong, but I don't think that the IOTA folks have, have put out a paper that demonstrates that I'm wrong, if you see what I mean, or that demonstrates, you know, what the security bounds of this model is. There are other non-proof-of-work schemes, uh, sorry, non-chain schemes out there. Uh, one that's got a lot of attention lately is called Hashgraph, which has a novel way of uh, generating consensus. Um, I think what they've got is interesting. It's in their published papers. It's only about um, private networks, so it doesn't deal with proof of work or proof of stake. It's it's a fixed validator set, um, but it's also patent encumbered. And basically, when I discovered that, I stopped reading about it because I'm really only interested in things I can work on publicly.
there's ICOs like Status and so on that already have products out there that you can use. Um, but unless you count the average person as being somebody like me who's deeply involved in cryptocurrency, then probably not. Um, I guess the closest I would see is there's been uh, there was that system in Germany that lets you charge your electric car with blockchain credits. Um, so you're getting a little closer to the average person there. Um, there's various sort of flying under the radar efforts to use blockchain for um, uh, tracing of provenance um, and so forth. So you can tell that your bottle of wine really came from this winery and when it was made and that it's a legitimate and not a knockoff and so on. Um, but I'm not sure how far to launch any of those are. The advantage of the provenance thing, if, if you're ever interested in building like the simplest, highest impact blockchain app, is that they are ridiculously simple to build, but can actually cryptographically prove, you know, that, that something really comes from where it says. And I think um, probably the, the ways that blockchain will impact average people's lives first will, will be invisible ways. Uh, a lot like that. So for instance, banks are very excited about adopting closed blockchains, uh, you know, what we call consortium chains uh, for interbank clearance and so on, because it provides them with a way to do clearance without having to trust any one individual bank to be clearing transactions accurately. Um, and, you know, may not be long before some countries or, or parts of countries are running on those without people ever being aware of it, except that maybe their transaction gets processed faster because I learned recently that um, in the US, the way interbank clearance happens is that every bank uploads a CSV file to an FTP server once a day, and then the Fed runs this gigantic batch job, which basically sorts all of the lines into the appropriate output banks, and then all the banks download the new CSV files from the FTP server. Uh, and I think they recently upgraded to SFTP, which is hooray. Um, but that's why it takes at least a day. Beforehand, I, I don't speculate about price because uh, the one thing watching the markets have taught me is that I'm completely unable to predict anything. Um, none of it makes any sense. I, it is a source of frustration and confusion to me that we keep building cool stuff and nobody seems to care and Bitcoin keeps fighting with itself and tripping over and always seems to stumble upwards. <laughs> That's all I, all I know. <laughs> it's always tricky to like, say anything about cryptocurrency prices in any case. Yeah, every time I think I, I know what's going to happen, I'm proven wrong. So. Uh, the one thing I do know is that the first time I went on holiday after I joined Ethereum, um, the price uh, more than tripled. So if you want to pay me to go on holiday, I'm <laughs> delighted. Definitely. Um, I have one question. Um, so if, uh, say, I'm, um, I'm a recent graduate from Le Vagon, I just, I just learned how to code, so I'm like, I'm, I'm a total newbie. I, I have some basics of coding, so I could get uh, you know a junior developer role somewhere or an intern uh, de developer role. Uh, but I'm I'm very interested in, in cryptocurrencies. But obviously, like I'm not a software engineer. Um, what what should I do to you know get up to speed uh, at some points to be able to work in that industry? Uh, what programming languages should I be interested in learning? Uh, so, so what would be your advice for, for, for our crowd here? So good front-end experience will always stand you in good stead because okay, a lot of uh, many, if not most, uh, dApps people are building now, uh, basically the only back-end they have is the blockchain. So they have a lot of front-end code that does a lot of heavy lifting. Um, 
on the back end, Solidity is pretty much the language du jour for, for writing smart contracts at the moment. There are other languages that compile to the EVM, the Ethereum Virtual Machine, but Solidity has definitely got the best tooling and the, the largest user base and therefore the best you know, documentation and support and so on. Um, in terms of how to lose, uh, lose that, you <laughs> learn that, there are a few uh, good tutorials online. I mean, basically just searching for Solidity tutorial. The uh, official docs themselves have some, some pretty good introductory stuff. Um, and of course, there are short courses uh, galore and so on that you can go on to uh, to learn the basics. Um, the main thing I'd say is that you're not just learning a language, you're also having to learn what the fundamental premises of, of the, the blockchain environment are. Um, there are things that are different, you know, like, for instance, um, you can run code to read from the blockchain, so it can fetch a bunch of data and do an arbitrary amount of computation on it and return it to your app instantly and for free, well, more or less instantly. Um, but if you want to change something on the blockchain, then you have to submit a transaction. You have to pay gas fees, which means it costs ether, um, and it takes, you know, until your transaction is mined. So everything you do is basically split into either a read, which is quick and fast and uh, quick and free, or a write, which is slow and expensive. So you end up with a, you know, diff completely different way or two different ways of interacting with the blockchain. Um, and then there are gotchas in terms of how you have to write your app to protect against various types of attack and, and, and a lot of it's very sort of game theoretic where previously you just had to write some code and make sure nobody could DOS it. Now you have to worry about what if the miner has an incentive to like reorder my transactions and so on. Um, so when you're learning it, start by writing something fairly basic and, and give it a go. And you know, it's a really fun experience like launching some code on the blockchain and then giving it to people and saying, look, you can interact with this now, you know, and, and um, it's going to follow those rules and you can, like, build whatever it is you want and it just works, you know. Um, it's exciting. Thanks for listening to The Wagon Live. Tune in next week for another episode. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to our series by clicking the subscribe button.